Yeah, well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis. Thank you. Genesis uh, 25. That's actually where we're going to start uh, this morning. The title of the message is An Epic Arrival Foretold. And we're going to be spending our time in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. But I want to start in Genesis 25 because there is a connection here that is worth pointing out. We've been studying the book of Genesis here at Cornerstone over the last few years, and there's something that happens in Genesis 25 that helps us to realize that what happens in our passage today has been about 1,800 years in the making. And let me show this to you. In Genesis 23, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies and she is buried. But then notice what Abraham does in Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse one. Now, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. Verse 4, the sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanok and Abida and Elda. All these were sons of Keturah. Now go to verse 13, where we learn something about Ishmael, who was born from Abraham's concubine Hagar. We learn that the names of Ishmael's two oldest sons are as follows. Verse 13, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael. In the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar. Now go back to verse 5 of Genesis 25 and observe what Abraham does in this verse. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, which would be Keturah and Hagar, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. Notice the emphasis on the direction that Abraham sent the sons and grandsons of his. He sent them eastward to the land of the east. Was it a cruel thing for Abraham to send his sons through Hagar and Keturah off to the east, away from Isaac like this? Not at all. Abraham is wanting to clear the way for his son Isaac to have room to flourish, knowing that it will ultimately be through Isaac that the blessing of God would reach all the families of the earth, including these descendants of Keturah and Ishmael, who would be blessed through Isaac and Isaac's seed. Long story short, God blessed Isaac and God blessed Isaac's son, Jacob, who had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel became a nation, but experienced God's judgment because of the sins of the people. Nonetheless, God was gracious to them, and he promised them that a future day was coming when the Messiah would arrive and when he would reign over Israel. And when peoples 
would flock to the promised land to pay the Messiah tribute when the days of his glory have come. In fact, listen to a prophecy in Isaiah 60 along these lines. And notice the emphasis on light in the context of darkness. Speaking to Israel, God says in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Now listen to what he says beginning in verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Notice that the five names that are mentioned in this prophecy of Isaiah 60, that all five of these names appear in Genesis 25 as being sons whom Abraham sent off to the east. Essentially, what we see here in Isaiah 60 is a prophecy of a coming day when the descendants of Ishmael and Keturah will return from the east and come to the promised land, bearing gifts and bringing animals for sacrifice. And the descendants of Keturah are specifically said to bring gold and frankincense when they come. Now, fast forward several hundred years to Matthew chapter 2. And now you can turn to Matthew 2. The Messiah has been born as a baby to his mother Mary in the city of Bethlehem. And then the very next thing that we are told in Matthew's gospel is a story about some men coming from the east, bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and it's a radiant light that brings them who are these men they are the magi and some quick facts about the magi would be helpful at this point the magi were magicians in the sense of being exceptionally wise men of their day knowledgeable in religion And in science and history and math, these men were also premier astronomers as well. They operated off the premise that the heavens have something to tell us about God and about what is happening on earth. So they kept a keen eye on 
the heavens looking for signs in the stars. Based on what we know of the Magi from history, we know that these were extremely powerful men. These men were not kings, but they were king makers. It was the Magi who tutored the sons of kings, preparing them for the day when they would become king. In the land of Persia, no man could become king without the approval of the Magi. In Babylon and Persia, when someone would become king, they would essentially have a cabinet of advisors and the sitting members of that cabinet were the Magi. These were powerful men. As for the Magi in our passage today, we know that they knew something of the coming messianic king of Israel. They're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures enough to know that a king of the Jews is coming and that a light in the heavens will herald his arrival. They know enough to know that this Messiah king of the Jews is someone who is worthy of worship, not just by the Jews, but by all peoples the world over. And they're serious enough in their faith to make a long journey in search of this one to worship him. And as we work our way through our passage today, I want us to observe seven developments in the story of the Magi's journey to the land of Israel in search of Christ. There's much for us to learn here. If God has touched your heart and you are at a time in your life where you are seeking Christ, you will be encouraged and you'll find help for yourself in this story of the Magi's journey in search of this same Christ. Seven developments in this story of the Magi's journey to Israel in search of Christ. And the first of these developments is they arrive in Jerusalem asking where Christ is. They arrive in Jerusalem asking where Christ is. The journey the Magi go on is no casual journey. These men travel a tremendous distance to find Christ. Look at what the text says in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. If these men are coming from Babylon or Persia, which is extremely likely And if they followed the curve of the Fertile Crescent, which most people did rather than traveling through the desert, then their journey would have been about 900 miles. Depending on their mode of transportation, this journey would take them anywhere from a month if they're going really fast to a few months. If you read Ezra chapter 7, you see that it took Ezra four months to make this exact journey. Assuming the mid-range of those possibilities, this would at least be four months of these men's lives on a round-trip journey to Israel and to back and back. Four months of being away from their homes, away from their society, away from their comfort zones. Imagine something being so valuable to you that you're willing to leave everything for four months at least and make this kind of trip. 
According to the text, these magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The tense of the verb saying is present tense, meaning that the magi were repeatedly asking people this question. They didn't just ask it once. This means they would have come into Jerusalem and asked someone, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Assuming everyone would have known. And the person they asked would have said, I don't know. And they would have gone to someone else and asked the same question. And that person would have said, I don't know, go ask so-and-so. And they would have gone from person to person asking this question. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Because they're not getting an answer to the question that they're asking, but they persist and refuse to let themselves be discouraged in their search for Jesus. We learn in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, that God is a rewarder of those who not just seek him, but diligently seek him. And God is going to reward the Magi here because they are diligently seeking Christ. What is the secret of their persistence? Well, the secret is that they believed. Notice that they're not asking people if the king of the Jews has been born. They're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They may not know where he is, but they are absolutely confident that he, the king of the Jews, has truly been born. You don't travel this kind of distance back in this day, in order to find out if the king of the Jews has been born, you travel this distance and you persist only because you are certain that the king of the Jews has truly been born and you just need to know where he is. How is it that they are so confident that the king of the Jews has been born? Well, this brings us to the next development in the story of the Magi's journey in search of Christ. Number two, they explain the phenomenon that convinced them that Christ has been born. Notice what they say in verse one. They say, we saw his star in the east. This is how they know that he has been born. As for the star that the Magi saw when they were in the East, there are different suggestions that have been offered. Uh, Some say that what the Magi saw was an alignment of planets of some sort that created a bright formation in the sky. Some suggest that it was a comet racing through the sky. The Greek word for star here. Uh, It simply speaks of a bright light in the heavens. So this word is broad enough to include any of such possibilities. Back in 2007, my wife and I were in Bethlehem listening to a man deliver a lecture on the star of Bethlehem and what he thought it was. And the speaker was giving a compelling presentation saying that he thought that the star was a particular alignment of planets that happened in 4 BC on April 17th. April 17th is my birthday. (laughs) 
So I turned to my wife and I said, I really like this interpretation. Because if this man is right in his explanation, then that would mean that Jesus and I have the same birthday, and I would love that. However, my head was telling me that this man's view is almost certainly wrong, or at least incomplete. Whatever the star is, it must have the ability to appear and disappear and reappear. And it must have the ability to move ahead of the Magi and stop over the house where Jesus was, which is exactly what we see the star doing in verse 9 of Matthew 2. So at the very least, whatever the star was, it must have included some kind of supernatural light in the heavens that was actually able to direct the Magi to the very house where Jesus was at the time. Whatever this star was, the Magi see it when they are in Babylon. And when they see it, they know that it means that the Messiah has been born. My personal guess regarding the star is informed by linking the prophecy of Isaiah 60 to what is described in Luke chapter 2. In Isaiah 60, Isaiah speaks of a future day for Israel when it can be said Verse 1, that your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you and his glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light. And then according to Luke 2, on the night of Christ's birth, an angel appears to the shepherds in Bethlehem and we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds, making them very afraid in Luke chapter 2. Verse 9, so we know that the glory of the Lord shined in the night sky on the evening of Christ's birth. We're then told that suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. My suspicion is that what the shepherds saw over Bethlehem on the night of, of Christ's birth, God opened the eyes of the Magi to see from a distance when they were in the east. And they know that it means that Christ has been born. In other words, the star that the Magi saw was the glory of God appearing in the night sky. Perhaps also the Magi are familiar with Numbers 24, verse 17, where it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion. This verse is not promising that there will be a star in the heavens on the day of the Messiah's birth. It's actually telling us that the Messiah himself will be the star of Jacob that will rise but perhaps the Magi see the light in the heavens and they put that together with Isaiah 60 and Numbers 24, 17, and they conclude that the Messiah has been born and they decide to leave and go to Jerusalem in order to search for this one whom they now know has been born King of the Jews. And now here they are in Jerusalem asking around for his whereabouts and when people ask them, how do you know that the king of the Jews has been born? They say, well, 
we saw his star in the east. That's not all they do. This brings us to the third development in the story of the Magi's journey in search of Christ. Number three, they declare their worshipful purpose for wanting to find Christ. Observe what they say at the end of verse two. They say, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The Magi are very intentional in their quest to find Jesus. They want to know where he is so that they can worship him as God. This is not only their intention, but they're public about their intention. They don't mind the whole world knowing that they've come to the land of promise in order to offer full worship and allegiance to this one who has been born king of the Jews. Where is he, they say. We've traveled all this distance so that we can find him and worship him as God. These men don't worship the stars. They don't worship any earthly king back in Persia or Babylon. They want to give their worship to one person only, and that is he who has been born king of the Jews. They're not even coming into Jerusalem to decide whether or not they might deem Christ to be worthy of their worship. They've already decided on that. They're here to find Jesus so that they can worship him as God. That's already their purpose. They're not coming into Jerusalem to just meet up with friends. They're not in Jerusalem because they heard that Jerusalem has a great praise band or Christian seats. They're not here because they're going to get a cool visitor badge or a gift card to a coffee shop. They're here for one purpose, and that is to worship Christ. And they're not even here because of what they can get from Christ, although that would have been fine. They simply want to find him so that they can fall on their face before him and worship him. The privilege of worshiping Christ is in itself to them the greatest gift that they could ever receive. It's the only reason that they have come all this way to Jerusalem to just worship him. Well, when you search for Christ in this way and you're so public about it the way they are and you speak the truth about Christ and you call him king, the way these magi do, you're bound to create some commotion. And that's exactly what happens as the story unfolds. And this brings us to the next development in this account of the magi's journey to Israel in search of Christ. Number four, they unwittingly stir up trouble in their search for Christ. Observe what the text says in verse three. When Herod the king heard this, in other words, when he heard about this one who has been born king of the Jews and who had a star in the sky announcing his birth, he was troubled. We know from history that Herod was an extremely paranoid man, paranoid about anyone who might try to snatch his power away from him. For example, we know from history that Herod once grew suspicious of his wife's brother, 
so he had him executed. At a later point, he grew suspicious of his wife's mother, so he had her killed. And we know from history that these two murders had a negative impact on Herod's marriage to this woman. (laughs) Studies show that when you kill your wife's brother and then her mother, it hurts the marriage. So not surprisingly, it wasn't long after those murders that Herod grew suspicious of this particular wife, so he killed her. He had nine other wives, so he didn't sweat the loss of this one. History also tells us that Herod had two of his own sons killed because he grew suspicious of their intentions to take his throne before their time. Five days before he died, Herod grew suspicious of yet another son and had him killed. It's safe to say that Herod was paranoid about holding on to his throne for as long as possible. And he will tolerate absolutely no rivals to his throne. And here come the Magi into Jerusalem asking the worst possible question anyone could ask. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Herod catches wind of this and He is troubled. By the way, we don't know how many magi there were. Ancient church tradition says there were 12. Later church tradition says there were three. We honestly don't know the number. We do know that these men were powerful. They were wealthy men. And no doubt they brought many servants and attendants with them. They probably had soldiers with them also. So this is very likely an impressive contingent of people coming into Jerusalem, asking around for this one who has been born king of the Jews. And the text says when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. All Jerusalem is troubled because they were certain that Herod was going to respond viciously and with brutality to any threat to his throne. And they fear what Herod is going to do. Well, Herod was a ruthless man, but he was also shrewd. Observe what he does in verse four. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Herod gathers these religious scholars together and says, hey, guys, you know, I've been having my devotions lately, and I've been thinking about the Messiah, and I'm just wondering if there's anything in biblical prophecy that indicates where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And the religious experts give him an answer. Verse 5, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they share this prophecy with Herod. 
Herod then dismisses these religious experts from his presence, and then he calls the Magi into his presence. And observe what he does in verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He's asking them, when did this star appear that you saw when you were in the east? And he was able to get specific information from them such that he was able to determine to his own satisfaction the exact time that the star appeared. What Herod is doing here reveals something that is astonishing about unregenerate humanity. Herod, please note, is not questioning the fact that a star appeared announcing the birth of the Messiah. He's assuming that happened, which means he clearly believes something miraculous has occurred. He believes there was a star. He believes that it is the Messiah's star. He believes that the Messiah has truly been born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of a several hundred year old prophecy. He believes all of that and he wants to kill the Messiah. He wants to kill him so badly that by the time this chapter is over, Herod will end up slaughtering every baby boy in Bethlehem who is two years old and younger. Sometimes we think that, man, if we could just provide enough evidence to convince people that the God of the Bible really exists, then they will automatically believe and surrender their hearts to God. But what Herod does here is simply one example in the Bible of how that's not true. The Bible teaches that Satan and his demons know that there is a God and they hate him. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul speaks of people and says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. In Revelation 16, 9, we read of people who have no doubt regarding the existence of God, who is dropping plagues upon the world, and everyone knows they're coming from the God of heaven, and they respond by blaspheming the name of God and did not repent so as to give him glory. When I was 18 years old, I doubted the existence of God and I made a promise to God that if he convinced me that he existed, then I would give my life in full surrender to him. God then over time, convinced me that he existed as I was doing research on the topic. But then once I was intellectually convinced, guess what? I still did not surrender to him. I still lived for myself until several weeks later when God performed a miracle of regeneration in my heart and brought me to a place of repentance and surrender. That's the touch that all of us need. And Herod has not received this touch. He believes in the miraculous. He has no doubt about the truth of Old Testament prophecy. He believes the Messiah has truly been born and he wants to find him so that he can kill him. And he won't mind killing hundreds of other children just to make sure 
that he kills this Messiah. Well, the hearts of the Magi are in a very different place. They're searching for Christ in order to worship him. And God uses Micah 5.2 to help them in their search. This leads us to the next development in this story of the Magi's journey to Israel in search of Christ. Number five, they are sent by Herod to Bethlehem to find Christ. As the story unfolds, Herod basically would have said to the Magi, hey, I have some information for you that can help you in your search. And he would have shared Micah chapter five, verse two with them and alerted them to the fact that the Messiah based on this prophecy has been born there. And then observe what happens in verse eight. And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they, the Magi, went their way. Probably amazed, like, man, this king is so helpful to us in our quest. Armed with this information from Herod, the Magi began traveling to Bethlehem. Hence, we can say here that the Magi received help from Scripture in their quest to find Christ. They got to Jerusalem by the star, but it was no doubt their understanding of Scripture that told them how to interpret that star. And once they get to Jerusalem, it is Micah chapter 5, verse 2 that provides them the guidance that they need to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is five miles south of Jerusalem. God provides that scriptural information to them through Herod. With all of his devious intentions, Herod ended up merely being a pawn in God's plan to get the Magi to Bethlehem through a text of scripture, which leaves us, I think, with an important point that is worth making. If you're interested in seeking Christ and finding him, you should know that you can find him the same way the Magi did with the help and with the guidance of scripture. I remember a woman who once attended our church who was sharing with me how she grew up in a Jewish household that hated Christ. When she came of age, she began wondering, why do my parents hate Jesus so much and view him with such disdain? So she grabbed a copy of the Bible that she found somewhere and she started reading the gospel of John in order to discover what was so awful about Jesus to make him worthy of such hate. But as she read through the Gospel of John, she found herself falling in love with Jesus, the very Jesus her parents hated, and she became a Christian. She found Christ. She found him through the Scripture. And if you want to find God, if you want to find Christ, go to the Bible, read the Bible, and the Scriptures will take you to him just as the scriptures ultimately brought the Magi to Jesus 2,000 years ago. There's yet another development in this story of the Magi's journey to find Christ. Number six, they rejoice in the reappearance of the star that 
points them to Christ. Observe what happens in verses 9 and 10. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Evidently, the star was not in the sky their whole trip to Jerusalem. It had appeared and then disappeared, but now it's reappearing to their view. As they began their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, being governed by Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the star reappears and the text tells us that it went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Whatever this star was, it had the ability to appear, to disappear and reappear, and it had the ability to move ahead of the Magi as they traveled to Bethlehem, and it had the ability to stand over the place the house where Jesus was, clearly identifying the house where he could be found. Verse 10 tells us the reaction of the Magi when the star appeared. The text says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You say, wow, they must have really loved stars if they get this excited over the appearance of this star. No, they're not, they're not so happy right now to see this star because they were lovers of stars. They are rejoicing over this particular star because of the fact that it's going to point them to Jesus. Mark my words, if you value Christ, then you will value anything that takes you to him and points you to him. That's why Christians love creation because creation points us to Christ. That's why we love the Bible, because the Bible points us to Christ. That's why we love the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit points us to Christ. That's why we love other believers in Jesus, because they point us to Christ. And they love the star for this reason. Notice that they don't idolize and fall down and worship the star. And make that the main thing? No, they rejoice in the star because it was sent by God to lead them to the one whom they desire to worship. And they allowed it to lead them all the way to Christ. This leads us to the final development in this story of their journey in search of Christ. Number seven, they, the Magi, worship Christ once they find him. Such a beautiful moment. Observe what the Magi do once they see Christ. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Jesus was at least three and a half months to probably a year and a half at this point in time. The Magi come into the house and the text tells us that they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And then notice what it says next. And they fell to the ground and worshiped Mary. 
Is that what it says? Does it say, and they fell to the ground and worshiped Mary and Jesus? Does it say that? No, it says, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Today, there are some who would have come into the house and worshiped Mary and Jesus. But these magi come into the house and they see both Jesus and Mary and they fall to the ground and worship him. And in worshiping him, they were honoring Mary because Mary also worshiped him. If you really cherish Mary and wish to honor her, and you should, then join her in the humble worship of Christ. Notice again the text. They fell to the ground and worshiped him. They didn't just bow their heads or take a knee. They fell to the ground. They collapsed to the ground. This is the kind of bowing where you collapse to the ground and press your face and your body against the ground, getting as low as you possibly can in the presence of the one that you are worshiping. This is a humbling posture. With this posture, the Magi are completely humbling themselves before Jesus and saying to him, we are at your mercy. Do to us as you please. We are also at your service. Whatever you wish for us to do, your wish is our command. We are your servants and we completely trust you enough to lay our whole selves down in front of you. This is the posture of humility and trust and full surrender, which is the essence of true worship. Worship in the truest sense of the term is the trusting surrender of your full self to God. And it's the only proper response to Jesus Christ. Observe what the Magi do next in verse 12. The text says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. I hate to admit this to you, but when I was a kid, whenever I heard the word frankincense and the telling of the Christmas story, I always thought of Frankenstein, which always ruined the mood for me. So I got a kick out of this cartoon that I saw recently where the wise men are standing together about to go on their trip and Two of the wise men are standing there with gold and myrrh, and they're looking at the third wise man who had brought Frankenstein. And they say to him, we picked up the gold and the myrrh, but what on earth is that? I don't know. Maybe you think the same way that I used to think as a child. But if you do tend to think that way, this will help you. Whenever you see the word frankincense, think of it as a frank incense. Think of it as two words, because that's literally what this word means. This incense was a very frank incense in the sense of being a bold and strong incense. This frank incense was a dried sap drawn from a particular tree that produced a very strong aroma when it was burned 
It was valuable and had many good uses, and it's one of the gifts that the Magi are bringing here to Jesus. This act of giving gifts of gold and frankincense to Christ is another indication that the Magi must have been governed by some awareness of Isaiah 60, where it is foretold in Isaiah 60, verse 6, that people would come to Jerusalem bearing gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Evidently, the Magi view themselves as the first installment of a greater flux of people who are going to descend upon the promised land in a future day to worship and to sing the praises of the Messiah. They view their gold and their frankincense as early harbingers of more gifts that will be brought by the nations later to the Messiah. They understand, no doubt, that it will be a while before the full promise of Isaiah 60 will be fulfilled, but they want to be the first of many from among the nations who will come to the land of promise and bring their gifts to the Messiah. Gold and frankincense were prophesied as gifts in Isaiah 60, but why would the Magi bring myrrh? Myrrh was valuable. It was used in perfumes. It also had medicinal value. It was used as a spice when preparing a body for burial. In ancient times, Egyptian soldiers were known to take myrrh into battle with them so they could use it to stop their wounds from bleeding. Myrrh was also viewed as a painkiller which explains why they tried to give wine mixed with myrrh to Jesus when he was on the cross in Mark chapter 15, verse 23. Myrrh was among the first gifts given to Jesus and myrrh was among, it was actually the last thing given to him hanging upon a cross. So this gift of myrrh from the Magi probably embodied some recognition on the part of the Magi that this Christ child is going to suffer in some way. Indeed, he did suffer and die on the cross to shed his blood so that those who believe in him could have their sins forgiven. All in all, the Magi give four gifts to Jesus. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they also gave themselves they fell to the ground in full surrender of themselves first, and then they open up these other gifts. And with surrendered hearts, they give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Imagine the precious scene of Jesus as maybe a one-year-old child, perhaps having just learned how to stand and walk, standing there while these powerful men bow before him in abject worship and give him these gifts. There's no way to know for sure, but these magi may very well have been descendants of Keturah, Abraham's wife after Sarah. And this is the story of their 900-mile journey in search of Christ, this one who had been born king of the Jews and partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 60. 
Their act of worship is an early ray of a coming dawn when people of every tribe and tongue and nation will come from around the world and bow before Jesus Christ and worship him. And the Magi's worship of Christ is our cue that we too should fall before Jesus and worship him in full surrender. The Magi would not want us to be impressed with their 900-mile journey to find Christ, nor would they want us to be impressed with their diligence in finding Christ. They would want us to read the story and be impressed by the one who would inspire this kind of seeking and this kind of worship. These men had everything that people could have wanted in their day, They had power, prestige, they had wisdom, they had wealth, yet their life was not complete. They travel 900 miles to find him and to worship him because he apparently meant more to them than any of these other things that they had attained. And they found him with the help of scripture and they worshiped him. It's easy to be impressed with the journey that the Magi go on in order to find Jesus, but we should be more impressed with the journey Christ took from heaven to earth, from the heights of heaven to the lowliness of a manger, and then to the awful lowliness of a cross in order that he might provide salvation for the Magi and for you and for me. Christ traveled a far greater distance to reach the Magi than they traveled to reach him. That's for sure. And because of what Christ has done, you can reach Jesus in this very moment, even while sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now. Because he comes to you. And the question is, will you bow before him in humility and in trust and in surrender? Do you see what the Magi saw in Jesus? The Magi just saw Jesus as an infant or perhaps as a toddler, but they knew that he would one day be king, and they saw that with the eye of faith. We read our Bibles with hindsight, and we see that Jesus grew up, and he lived the perfect life, and he died a death on the cross, shedding his blood for the sins of all of us. And then he was raised from the dead and God then ascended Jesus to rule from his own right hand in heaven and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to this one. And he will be the judge of every single human being who has ever lived. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I ask you this morning, will you believe the truth about Jesus? And will you bow before him as your sovereign Lord? Will you surrender to his loving rule over your life? I hope that you will. Jesus will be a far better ruler over your life than you have been over your own life. If you believe in Jesus in this way, Jesus will be delighted to forgive you of all of your sins 
and bring you into right relationship with God. He'll give you more gifts than you could ever hope to give to him. Try as you might, you will never be able to outgive Jesus. And if you have never surrendered to his loving rule over your life, I plead with you to do that today. Because here's what I found from experience. When you are bowed before Jesus in love, you don't just find him. You find home. And you also find yourself as you were always meant to be. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that if there's any in this room this morning who, whose hearts you are touching, that you would draw them by your sweet persuasions to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be so taken by the glory of this one that they would see his beauty and captivated by his beauty and that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live another day apart from his loving rule over their lives. For those of us who know you, Lord, melt our hearts. Help us to see as we've never seen before the glories of the things that we sing about and we celebrate during this time of year. These things boggle the mind and they are true, beautifully true and can melt our hearts when they are hard and bring joy to our hearts when we are sad and bring us low and humble repentance when our hearts are proud to replace our hate with love and our defiance with submission. All of us in this room who know you, Lord, we have so far to go. I'm just stunned by how broken I still am. But I know, I know, I know that I am a far different man, a far better man than I would ever have been were it not for you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for saving one such as me, giving me forgiveness and changing my life. And I pray that you would give that same gift to everyone in this room. Draw them to yourself and save for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. And we ask that you would receive these funds and do much with all that is given for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and whose name we pray and all God's people said.